We're going to start reading from verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in, in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I will not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more highly of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Bit of sarcasm going on there, I think. Even though I am nothing, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me in this wrong. Again, a bit of sarcasm. We see a lot of sarcasm, actually, uh, by Paul. Uh, some people say it's the, uh, the lowest form of wit. I think it's the highest form of intelligence. But there we go. That's another matter. But have you ever been criticized? Have you ever been criticized? I don't mean the odd casual comment, which itself can be quite upsetting, can't it? But I mean the, the constant, mean-spirited disapproval and condemnation over something that you've done or over something that you failed to do on how you look or essentially the person that you are. Well, as far as, uh, as, as being on the receiving end of criticism, I think the Apostle Paul had the t-shirt on this one. He really did. He was undermined. He was attacked. He was derided by a certain segment of the Corinthian church and these people were fired up by these false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And in the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, chapter 10 to 13, we discover some of the things that they were actually saying about Paul. We're gonna, I'm going to put some verses up on screen now just to whiz through the last few weeks of uh, what's been said here. When in chapter 10, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, go back a couple of pages. And uh, Paul writes... By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, 
speech marks when face to face with you. But bold speech marks again went away. And the reason that those words uh, timid and bold are placed in speech marks in the New International Version is because Paul is quoting what the Corinthians themselves were saying about Paul. And Paul had got to hear about it. Okay, So that's one of the things that he was being criticised for. Then in verse 10 of the same chapter. For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Hmm. I don't know if you've noticed uh, that slander nearly always has a morsel of truth in it. This morsel of truth, then it's given a half a turn and it actually becomes untrue. And having done 14 studies to date on 2 Corinthians, I think that we'd all probably agree that Paul's letters are weighty and forceful. No doubt about that. But I think, that it's, I think it's also true to say that Paul was un unimpressive. Uh, as Dan read to us um, a couple of weeks back, what Paul actually looked like. Now, we don't have this in the scriptures, but in one of the ancient history books, it says that uh, Paul was short and bald and bow-legged and having bushy eyebrows that met in the middle and having a large hooked nose. In, in, in fact, he looked a little bit like... Um, no, no, that's a joke. That's a bad joke. But the one thing that we can say is that he looked nothing at all like George Clooney or Johnny Depp. Okay. By his own admission, he was also not very eloquent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that when I came to you, I came not with eloquence. But then to say that his speaking amounted to nothing was not only untrue, it was probably slanderous, even blasphemous, because his speaking did certainly amount to every, everything. And he brought the gospel, the message of Christ, to these Corinthians. He saw lives changed. What's this next criticism? In chapter 11, verse 6, he says, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. Now, we've said before, when we're reading the scriptures, what we're doing is listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You know, um, it's difficult, isn't it? Someone's in the same room as you, and you're having a conversation. You don't hear what the person on the other side is saying. You're just hearing what they are saying. My mother is here this morning, and I have co telephone conversations with her a lot. But I never say anything. She does all the talking. Isn't that right? See, my wife wouldn't lie even if... No, we won't go there. But what's going on here? He's saying, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. But why should he write those words? Come on, it's obvious. It's because they were actually saying, this guy's an hopeless speaker. And he hasn't got much knowledge either. Then there was another criticism in verse 7. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I don't know if you've noticed this. When someone takes a dislike to you, they sometimes, probably more than sometimes, move from that which is objective to the subjective. And they get away from the facts. 
and they just see everything in you which is bad. Many things they see they point the finger at. The way that you speak. Your accent. Not that I've got one. The manner of your dress. The car that you drive. The eyeliner that you use. I've been on the receiving end of that complaint a few times. And Paul's critics are now scraping the barrel. And they're accusing Paul of not being any good as a speaker simply because he did not request money for his speaking when he brought the gospel to the church at Corinth. Now you think that he would have been commended for that, wouldn't you? You know, my word, this guy has gone out of his way, he's made great sacrifices, he brought the gospel free of charge. But no, they just turned that on its head. And they saw that as a negative thing. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't have television sets. So on an evening, you didn't put your foot up, feet up again, you know, and, and watch EastEnders or Corrie. But their entertainment came from these traveling speakers, men who had been trained in rhetoric and speaking, and they would just go out and listen to them. And the best people would obviously get the highest um, money given to them. The independent newspaper reported that Tony Blair received £330,000 for a 20-minute after-dinner speech in 2015. Not bad. That works out close on a million pounds an hour. The ironic thing about all of this was that the speech was made for a world hunger event, but there we go. He's not the only one. In ancient Greece, a good speaker could charge a large sum, an okay speaker would be a little bit cheaper, and a poor speaker would do it for free. Now these false teachers accused Paul of being absolute rubbish because he didn't ask for any money. This guy, he's not asking for money, he must be an, a rank amateur. Now, if these um, criticisms had been just about Paul. To tell you the truth, I don't think he would have wasted his ink in writing this letter and telling us all about this. But Paul knew that there was far more at stake here than just his reputation. And Paul challenged these accusations against him as forcibly as he possibly could because he knew that what was at stake here was the message of the good news of Jesus and the relationship that these Corinthians had with Jesus. That was at stake. And Paul was certainly not going to let anything happen there. And Paul attempts to silence the doubts of these Corinthian uh, Christians uh, and the questions that they had over his authority as an apostle. And um, I know that uh, you looked at chapter 11 last week, but the difficulty is that chapters and verses came in much, much later, about 1,600 years later, than the, the letter was written and they do cross over a bit and therefore to understand what we are going on to today we've got to understand what Dan spoke about two weeks ago and a little bit of what Fiona spoke about last week as well and what Paul does in chapter 11 he starts to boast now you might think that's a little bit of a strange tactic for someone who taught humility and servanthood but before we call Paul a hypocrite, we need to see that his boasting was not a self-centered, look-at-me kind of boastfulness, 
showing his successes and abilities and strengths. Not at all. What he was boasting about was actually his weaknesses and his sacrifices and his vulnerabilities. You see, the Corinthians had this terrible habit of comparing one of their leaders against another. And if you go back to the studies that we did last year in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see there right at the beginning, Paul writes to them and says, Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Others are saying, I follow Peter. Others, I follow Apollos. And then the spiritual ones, I follow Christ. But he's saying, no, Christ isn't divided. We're all servants. You know, applaud us all. But now, they're at it again. And this time they're comparing Paul quite unfavorably with these smooth-talking, slick operators that Paul rather sarcastically calls them super-apostles. And Paul shows them, the Corinthians, that he was in no way inferior to any of these false teachers, but actually his credentials and his authority were superior. And it's really interesting. Um, He starts this boasting by saying up front, right at the start, what I'm doing is foolish. I'm absolutely a fool to talk like this. But you see, but since the gospel message... And their relationship with Christ was at stake. He was prepared to do with it whatever it took. And we read um, some verses here in, in chapter 11. He says uh, in verse 17, In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. And then he goes on a few verses later, verse 21, What anyone else dares to boast about, and I'm speaking like a fool, I also dare to boast about. So what Paul was doing here, he he was playing them at their own game. They were boasting about their Jewish heritage and being servants of Christ, and Paul says, so am I. The end of that conversation, that's where the comparison finishes. But then, as Fiona brought to us last week, he gives a whole list of all the trials, all the hardships that he has been through. The physical costs of following Jesus, imprisonment, flogging, exposure. He was whipped on five occasions with 39 lashes of the whip. He was stoned, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked on three occasions. He was in all sorts of dangers. The Jews hated him, the Gentiles hated him. He was in danger from imposters. He worked long, hard hours. He experienced hunger and thirst and cold. And then in chapter 11, verse 30, he concludes this list of severe trials by saying, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Which is very, very different to the kind of boasting that went on from these, uh, these false apostles who were boasting about their strengths. You see, they were boasting in order to make themselves look high and mighty, to look impressive. Whereas Paul's only desire was to point people to Jesus, the one who truly was impressive. A little bit like John the Baptist. You remember his famous uh, quote when he said of Jesus, he said, He must become greater, I must become less. And that's essentially what Paul is doing here. All Paul's opponents were boasting of their achievements and spirituality and success and And Paul highlights his struggles and his weakness and his foolishness and his disappointment. Paul was very much a fool for Christ. 
One of a Roman soldier's greatest and most glorious achievements in battle was called the Corona Muralis. Now this was a special military honour for a Roman uh, soldier. A little bit like the military cross or the Victoria cross. And the Roman soldier would get this Corona Muralis by being the first over the wall when, they were, when a city was under siege. And it was, you know, um, a great achievement in the Roman army. That's really interesting. At the end of chapter 11, Paul gives us a little detail which we could otherwise miss. And he speaks of a time when he went to present the gospel in the city. Uh, he went to, rather, uh, attack and persecute the Christians in uh, Damascus. And on the way there, he became a Christian himself with that amazing um, uh, encounter that he had with Jesus. And then, rather than going into the city in honor, he went in quietly and he left in dishonor. In fact, the king was after his blood and he was lowered down through the city walls, a window in the city walls, in a basket. He was a basket case. Right. Sorry. Now, that little detail doesn't mean an awful lot until you remember what the Roman soldiers regarded as one of their greatest achievements, the Corona Muralis, received for go the first being going over the wall uh, uh, with a city under siege. And Paul was the very opposite of that. You know, if that was a great honor, then the way that Paul left this city was the greatest dishonor. He was humiliated and he was a fool for Christ. And you see, the Corinthians wouldn't have missed that detail at all. Let's move on to chapter 12. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Apparently... The false teachers uh, told stories of special visions and having a special hotline to God. And I tell you what, if you've come across people such as that, those stories can sometimes be quite intoxicating. When someone gives you a personal story of how they met with God and how God has given them some personal revelation to go to tell other people. And Paul, he isn't going to be outdone by these folk. And he says that he too had an amazing experience. This is the way that he puts it in verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not able to tell. What an amazing verse that is. You know, I sometimes, and you probably also have heard of near-death experiences and so forth, and uh, <laughs> where the person is perhaps not sure what happened to them, whether it was physical or spiritual, but sometimes that's a life-changing thing, such as the Australian pastor, I'm sure many of you have come across, Ian McCormack, who was stung five times by a deadly uh, jelly, uh, box jellyfish. And this former atheist had such an encounter of heaven and of his life coming before him that he turned to Christ and he became a pastor. And his story is found on YouTube if you want to look it up. 
Well, let's just uh, pick out some of these words. The first thing that Paul says here, I know a man. Now, many people are a little bit confused as to why Paul speaks of himself in the third person here. Maybe Paul is a little bit reticent to um, boast about a remark- such a remarkable experience. We don't really know. But the one thing that we can say is that by verse 7 we see that Paul was actually talking about himself. There's no doubt about that because he moves from the third person and he starts speaking of himself in the first person. Fourteen years ago, the kind of experience that Paul was talking about is not the bread and butter of the Christian life. If you listen to some Christians, let's be honest about this, you can be forgiven in thinking that they live on a totally different plane, a different world from the likes of me and you. They seem to be constantly positioned in the heavens where they're forever given revelations and visions and words from God. Now, I want to just bring a balance to that. I thank God that God is a God who desires to communicate with his children. And I also thank God that sometimes he gives us special tokens of his love, a foretaste of heaven. But we don't constantly live in that kind of place. And Paul didn't either. You know, he was almost reluctantly forced to talk about this vision, this revelation, whatever it was, this experience that happened to him 14 years before because of what was happening with the Corinthians. Probably we wouldn't have heard about it otherwise. And Paul speaks about being caught up to the third heaven. Now, in Jewish thinking in the time, the first heaven, if you like, was the blue sky. It was the immediate heavens of Earth's atmosphere. The second heaven was seen as the starry sky. Uh, the outer constellation, the stars and the galaxy. And the third heaven in the Jewish mind was the immediate presence of where God lived. Verse 5. Paul writes, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Now, this experience was 14 years before that. And he didn't want to look back. He didn't want to boast about those experiences that he had back then. In fact, if the Corinthians hadn't forced him, as I say, to talk about this, we would have never heard of it. Paul wanted to focus on his own weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Why? So that Jesus would get all the honor. Sorry, we're whizzing through this, I know. There's so much... Uh, information here. Verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, let me pick up some of these statements here. Paul, first of all, speaks of this thorn in the flesh, a messenger for Satan, uh, from Satan. I think there will be many rainforests chopped down in order to provide the paper for the, uh, the paper that has been used for all the things that have been written on Paul's thorn in the flesh. 
In fact, uh, Dr. Paula Gooder lists 36 possible alternatives to what this mysterious thorn in the flesh might have been. Epilepsy, severe headaches or migraines, sexual temptations, eye trouble. Do you remember Paul, he became blind on his journey to Damascus? He was blind for three days. Maybe his eyes never fully recovered. And later on, Paul writes to the Galatian Christians about them would have willingly plucked out their eyes if it could have helped Paul. Maybe that's an indication of what Paul was suffering from. Towards the end of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 11, he says, See what large letters I am writing to you. In other words, he might have been describing the big scroll letters of someone who could hardly see. One of the most popular attacks, uh, uh, views, is uh, uh, that he was suffering from virulent malaria. Do you want to know what I think? (laughs) Please yourself. We don't know. That's it. We don't know. And I'm glad we don't know. Because, you know, if it was just those who suffer from migraine, everybody else would never be able to relate what Paul is saying about the thorn in the flesh. Yes? But the fact that Paul doesn't mention what the thorn in the flesh is means that probably we don't need to know, but we can all relate to this passage and what's being said there. That's my thought. He also calls it a messenger of Satan. It was a hindrance to his ministry. And Paul tells us that he prayed for its removal. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, three times suggests not just, you know, sort of adding on at the end of his evening prayers. Oh, by the way, by the way Lord, can you, can, you, can you get rid of this thorn in the flesh? But I, I imagine there were three seasons of prayer. Maybe he got others to pray with him. Maybe he got others to lay hands upon him. We don't know. But it wasn't just a casual request. And Paul shows us that he believed in healing prayer. He prayed for healing. He believed in healing prayer. He witnessed it many times in his his ministry. On one occasion, he raised a man from the dead. Remember the story of Eutychus? As Paul was droning on and on and on and on in his sermon, this guy sitting on the window ledge on the third story fell off. And Paul went down and prayed for him and brought him back to life. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul informs Timothy, his spiritual son, that he left his fellow worker, Trophimus, sick in the city of Miletus. So I'm sure Paul must have prayed for him on that occasion. So Paul was living in this tension. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed again for God to take this thorn of the flesh away from him. But God gave him something better than physical healing. It's amazing when we pray, you know, God can bring relief in different ways. Sometimes what God does is take that burden off our shoulders. Yes? And we say, thank you, God. Thank you. For healing me, or doing whatever we have requested. But there are other times that God just lightens that load. And he strengthens us. 
And he gives us his grace so that we can cope with that heavy load. And that's what he did with Paul. And Paul says, your grace, your grace is sufficient for me. You see, I think there are two extremes into which Christians can sometimes fall when it comes to healing. There are many Christians who seem to feel that they can just claim their healing from God. And when someone doesn't get healed, what I have seen some people do, sadly, and it's so wrong, they blame the person that they are praying for. You haven't got enough faith. God help us. Sometimes they might say, well, there must be some hidden sin in your life. And therefore, pouring on the condemnation and how wrong they are to think that way. But the other extreme is that you have Christians who can accept that God can heal, but never ask God to heal that family member or friend or work colleague. And James says in his New Testament letter, they do not have because they do not ask. And I believe that praying for the sick is a little bit like sharing your faith. The more that we share our faith with others, the more people will hear and the more people will accept Jesus. The more, people that, the more times that we pray for the sick, I believe, the more times we will see people actually healed miraculously by God. And Paul wasn't healed. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Or as the New, Inter, uh, New Living Translation puts it, my power works best in weakness. And Paul, I think, was a wonderful example of that statement. Paul was weakness personified. You know, sometimes when we look at ourselves, we can be so critical over our inability, over our limitations, over our own weaknesses. And we all say such things as, God could never use me. I can't do this or that or the other. And we have every excuse going. I'm not clever enough. I'm not gifted enough. People are far better than I am. God, what can I do anyway? What can I do? And God says to us, my power works best in weakness. You see, at face value, that sounds quite ridiculous. Who has ever thought of weakness as a virtue? You know, the idea of weakness being a virtue just cuts across um, human wisdom. You know, we would never think of weakness as something to boast about. You would never put on a job description, I am weak, <laughs> and see it as, uh, as, as some kind of great achievement. And yet when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he speaks positively about his own weakness no less than 29 times. I delight in weaknesses, he writes. We are glad whenever we are weak. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And far from being a source of embarrassment to him or even a disqualification of his ministry, Paul almost seems to wear this weakness as a badge of honor and the ground of his confidence because he says, when I'm weak, then I am strong. And it was in Paul's weakness that God demonstrated his power. Paul's ministry was astonishing. It was amazing. But there is only one legitimate explanation for the remarkable ministry of Paul. It was not the strength of his character. 
It was not his many gifts. It was not his stamina. It was not his endurance. It was not his leadership skills. The only explanation of Paul's outstanding ministry was God. God says, my power works best in weakness. I tell you what, I've learned many, many painful lessons over the years. Times when I have most often fallen flat on my face were times when I was overconfident in my own abilities. And the times when I experienced the Lord move and do astonishing things was always when I utterly depended on Him. You know, I've confessed to you previously that there have been times in the past when I felt that I could hardly get out of bed on a Sunday morning, not because I was lazy, but because I was so incredibly overwhelmed by my own inadequacy and wondered why anybody would ever turn up to listen to this babbler at the front of church. And often at those times, I found that God just took control and touched the lives of people very deeply. I think I'm in good company. There's a, a great preacher of yesteryear, a man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was known as the Prince of Pe- Preachers. And he, one Sunday morning at his famous church in London, the, Mator- the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, said that he was, he was so poor that Sunday morning that he was ashamed of himself. And as he walked away from the church, he just felt, how on earth could you, Lord, ever use anything as rubbish as what I brought to the congregation this morning? How could you do anything with that poor sermon? And in the months that followed, 41 people said that they decided to trust in Christ as Savior because of the weak message on that Sunday. The following Sunday, he decided to preach a, a great sermon to make up for his previous failure. And he didn't see one person converted. And I think there are two very, very important lessons here for us this morning. Not only for those of us who are preachers, but for those of us who serve Jesus in whatever way. Firstly, this is really important. Firstly, we need the blessing of God on all of our efforts. Without God's blessing and without God's anointing, we have nothing and we can do nothing. That is nothing which is ultimately effective. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stun guard in vain. The second principle is that our weakness is an occasion for the working of God's power. Let me just say that again. Our weakness is an occasion for the working of God's power. My power works best in weakness. You see, God is not looking for people who are strong in themselves, but for people who will allow God to show himself to be strong on their behalf. And what I'm going to say now, you, you may struggle to get your head around. I believe you can, be, you can never be too weak to be useful for Christ. But I think you can be too strong. Think about that for a moment. You can never be too weak, but you can be too strong. And Paul, a few chapters earlier, had stated that God had placed his treasure in jars of clay, in in other words, in weak human beings. And Paul says that it was to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not 
from us. My word, there are so many examples, aren't there, in the scriptures. You know, I could be here all day. Let me just go through one or two of them to give you an idea of the way that this works in, in scripture. Jacob, you remember that guy? He was a, a clever little rascal. He was someone who knew how to wheel and deal. He was the Del Boy trotter of his day. A scoundrel, a scallywag, full of his own scheming. And God said, I'm gonna, I, I love him anyway and I'm going to use him. But first, Jacob needed to be weakened. And after an encounter with God, he was then in the right place for God to use him. Think of Moses. Moses, a baby that was um, rescued from the river Nile, brought up by Pharaoh's daughter, educated and trained in Egypt University. He's someone who became mighty in word and deed. A prince, handsome, privileged, indulged, wealthy, resourceful, intelligent. A superb candidate for leadership. So what did God do? He sent him out into the desert, fleeing for his life having to look after a few sheep for 40 years. You see, God in that broke his self-reliance and his self-importance. And when God actually called Moses to reveal a plan for his life, all Moses could say is, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I've never been eloquent. Send someone else. I'm too weak. And guess what God says? My power works best in weakness. Peter boasted confidently, the rest of the disciples, they may fall away from you, but I never will. And we know the story, not long afterwards, after he swore that he had never known Jesus, and he was subsequently overwhelmed with regret. Peter went through a terribly humbling process in order to be reinstated by the amazing grace and mercy of Jesus. It was when he became weak that Peter became useful to God. So I would say to you this morning, if you were a person who feels weak, have nothing to offer, nothing to give, you might even feel disqualified in some way, I would say to you, that is not the case. But if you think that you're God's gift to this church, or, or to whatever ministry you might uh, perform in, God, you're lucky to have me on your side. Then I would say that you need to hold on because it's probably going to be a bumpy road for you. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, was one day complimented by a friend on the impact of his mission. And Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor uh, said, it seemed to me, can you just move that other, thank you. It seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. That's the way that he saw things. I'm sure that most of you are aware of uh, Johnny Erickson Tarder. Um, a teenager, as she was, she enjoyed riding horses and hiking and tennis and swimming. And then in the Chesapeake Bay in 1967, she had a diving accident, uh, which left her as a quadriplegic, being paralyzed from the shoulders down. In time, she learned to paint with a brush between her teeth. She began selling her artwork. She also began to write the same way. And to date, she has written over 40 books, recorded several musical albums, 
starred in an autobiographical movie of her life and is a worldwide advocate for those who are disabled people. Again, the weakness, and God just takes weakness and he converts it because he is the strong one. Another one, Nick Vucic. Nick has been handed some pretty awful cards in life. He was born without limbs except for a little small foot with two toes, which he rather humorously calls his chicken drumstick. And um, when he was a child, he found it exceptionally difficult in school, a massive disability. He was bullied. He confessed that he, on one occasion, tried to commit suicide at the age of 10. He chose, however, to, to, to live life to the full with God's help and grace. And since that time, Nick has learned to swim and surf and type and cook and 101 other things. He set up a non-profit organization when he was 17 years old. He's written half a dozen books. He's learned to write using the two toes on his left foot. He's also learned to throw tennis balls, get a glass of water, comb his hair, brush his teeth, answer the phone and shave. He has a university degree in accountancy and financial planning. He married the love of his life, a beautiful Japanese-American. A few years ago, and they have two young sons, both with arms and legs. He just celebrated his 34th birthday. Crammed a lot in, hasn't he? Really. And when we get to a place of understanding that God's power works best in weakness, I believe that we will be used and useful to God more than we could ever believe. When we empty ourselves of our pride and our self-reliance, it's only then that we will know His power filling our lives. You see, God desires that we rest upon his ability, that we are sufficient in his sufficiency. And God is a jealous God. He will not allow anyone to share his glory. And God desires all the honor and the glory and the praise. Let me just finish by just quoting a, a short piece of prose. And then, guys, if you'd like to come back and lead us in our final song. Thank you. It says this, I cannot do without thee. I cannot stand alone. I have no strength or goodness, nor wisdom of my own. But thou, beloved Saviour, art all in all to me. And perfect strength in weakness is theirs who lean on thee. Let's pray together, shall we?